You know, I'm gonna give you a history lesson. We got some dumbass motherfuckers floating around this country. <laughs> start laughing! And when I do, start fucking. Also, y'all did some nasty ass jokes on my ass, too. Funny jokes and unfunny jokes come out of the same birth. You fucking guys are unbelievable. Evening, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Why Are You Laughing? A History of Comedy podcast. Coming to you live from the Vaulted Podcast Studios in Pawtucket, Rhode Island. And uh, today I'm pleased to introduce you to the original Kings of Comedy. This is one that's been requested a lot, um, so I wanted to get to it. And the way I think we're going to do it is, you know, we'll talk about the tour itself and the, the film itself a little bit. But I think a better way to do it is just talk about the four guys involved uh, Bernie Mac, D.L. Hughley, Cedric the Entertainer, and Steve Harvey, just kind of as individuals. So it'll be a little more of an abridged version of, uh, of their careers. You kind of like we did with uh, Otto and George and Bob Levy and Rich Voss, where we'll talk about all their careers in a, a shorter version than we would if they had a whole episode. Then the reason I kind of did it that way is because I started doing just a Bernie Mac episode. And while I like Bernie Mac, there wasn't I, I didn't feel like it warranted a full episode so it's kind of like let's let's combine them all maybe i could have done a full episode but i'm more interested in the four guys as a group anyways mr 3000 didn't give you enough content i would have talked about specifically maybe on patreon we'll talk about specifically mr 3000 <laughs> for a long time but what i was more and what people have asked for is you should do the kings of comedy i want to i want to hear the original kings of comedy and it was brilliant marketing in my perspective uh, from my perspective. And let's be clear, I was, I think when the original Kings of Comedy tour started, I was probably six or seven years old. So, I mean, I, did it work? I can guarantee it worked on uh, eight-year-olds. But, <laughs> but So I don't know if it worked for everyone, but I do remember as a kid thinking, oh, these must be the four best comedians. You know what I mean? Like, for whatever reason, the way they branded it and the way they advertised it, and this was advertised all over. I remember hearing spots on the radio and on television, go see the original Kings of Comedy. So in my dumb child mind, I was like, these must be the four best comics performing. Uh, and then I learned, you know, I am i wouldn't say I'm a huge fan of any one of them. I think they're all funny guys, but uh, I wouldn't consider any of them in the top ten comedians of all time. Not even close, I don't think. Uh, other people might. But I think it was very, very smart branding by them. Um, but first, before we get more into that, I want to tell you, like I said, we're coming to, to you from the Vaulted Podcast Studios in Pawtucket, Rhode Island. You can hit up Matt from RI on Twitter, and uh, he'll hook you up with an appointment here. And uh, go to blindmike.net. That's where you get this ep uh, these episodes a week early. You get Why Are You Laughing Early, plus uh, extra episodes of the Blind Mike Project, uh, the TV time capsules that we do. We're in a heated uh, series of Quincy right now. We may also watch, by the way, or we probably are watching by this point, Sammy the Bull has released a dramatic series which he will be acting in. So that that's very a lot of exciting things cooking at uh, blindmike.net. So go there to subscribe to the Patreon or support the show for free, which we also appreciate. Um, so let's, uh, let's start with Bernie Mac here on the list. And uh, Bernie, so... The way Bernie kind of got started 
Like he came up in Illinois. His um, his mother got sick and passed away when he was fairly young. He was also estranged from his father, who died young. His brother died young. He did not have a um, a, a fun upbringing. At least it didn't seem like he got married very young. I think he got married at twenty years old and was that with that woman until he died until uh, two thousand eight. I want to say two thousand nine. Um, so you know he he. Started in comedy. He had like limited success early on, and people credit his Def Jam set as the moment he really popped. So we'll play that for you in a second, but at first I think we're hearing from, uh, is it Alonzo Hamburger Jones telling us a bit about this moment? Yes, I believe so. Yeah. By the way, for those of you that don't know uh, Mr. Jones, he's a catchphrase comic that has one of the great... Whenever we do Def Jam, we will definitely play his set where uh, he... Ends every joke with a hamburger. And then we'll also refer to people like when he does crowd work, he's like, look at this hamburger over here. <laughs> like everything is hamburger with this guy for some reason. So, uh, you know, I wasn't sure if we would get a uh, uh, some wacky gimmick when I saw that this interview was online. But this is him talking a little bit about uh, Def Jam, which could be a hostile environment. And uh, Martin Lawrence went on before Bernie Mac. And this is kind of what was going on backstage with at uh at this Def Jam set, the first Def Jam. Terrible man, he's a terrible. This guy, terrible individual man. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, but but because I remember. I, now tell me, I'm correct. It was a long time ago. They told us we're taping five, five people, but we only going to show four. Right. Somebody was going to make it. Well, they ain't one good. Was going to be. But they might have put you on another show if you that funny. The only time slotted was for four. Okay, that's what so it was. So chances are you're going to be bumped to another show. Right. Right. But right. in this case. He Chris went up, knocked out the park, got a stand yeah. ovation. Roaches, man. Break it up, break it up, y'all. Break it up, break it up, y'all. And after the next two got booed, Bernie's backstage pacing like, yo, Martin, do something. This ain't right. This ain't the Apollo. And Martin turned him and said, if you can't handle it, you shouldn't be here. No. Yes, sir. So Martin told Bernie, yes, man? Yes, sir. And I'm sitting there like, Bernie's my idol. Right. And for him to tell Martin to do something, they said, you from New York, Hamburg, you do something. I said, technically, I'm not from New York. Oh, wow. You weasel. Yeah. And I <laughs> said, the they, they might boo me because they heard my material before. So when I went out there, that's why I was like, who else want to play? And I thought I did something. I turned it out. I right. got people. Man, Bernie went out there in seven minutes and did something I never saw in comedy in seven minutes. Yeah. But you know what? So it was such a beautiful moment because Kid was on his side, knew when to hit the thing right. at the same time too. That was just magic going together because they didn't rehearse that. You know, it wasn't that rehearsal. Was comedy magic. magic. Yes, yes. So it has like, my boot in front of you. You go and tell everybody you ain't afraid of. And a lot of people didn't realize what he was doing. They probably just thought of New York just to be right. New York. And but that's yeah. why everybody yeah. in the audience was screaming because they, I ain't scared of you. Right, right. Boo me, I ain't scared of you. That's dope. And he killed it. That's dope. Hamburger. Hamburger. So, so um, Def Jam is like a, sh I feel you, I, I've obviously never been there, so I'm guessing, but I feel like it's something you really needed to be there to appreciate. Uh, obviously, it was very popular on television as well, but based on the way this is described, you don't get the full feel of it. Like, it, this was a very hostile crowd, and they were going after Martin Lawrence, who at that time was crazy popular. Um, like they didn't give a fuck. They didn't, they didn't care what your name was. Um, you know, if you weren't, uh, meeting their standards, they would heckle the shit out of you. They would boo you off stage. There's all kinds of stories about, um, about the, you know, nightmare sets at like Def Jam shows or at the Apollo or whatever. They'd, uh, give you a very honest assessment of your performance. So like I said, you don't get the full feel of that because of the way it's edited in the TV show and everything. Um, but this is what Bernie Mac came out on stage and did uh, to this hostile crowd. 
Give it up for my man, Bernie Mac. I ain't scared of you motherfuckers. <laughs> I'm gonna tell you something straight off the motherfucking press. I ain't coming for no foolishness. And New York, goddamn y'all motherfucking women look good. Y'all like a bigger than egg sandwich look good. But I love sex. I love it. Can't do shit no more. And I'm blessed. <laughs> I'm big boned. I'm heavy structure. I'm hung low. If I pull my shit out, this whole room get dark. Kick it! You don't understand. I ain't scared of you, motherfuckers. <laughs> so, like I said, I don't think you really get the full feel for that because they're not even booing when he comes out on stage. Yeah. You know, like they're kind of giving him the benefit of the doubt when he walks on. But by all accounts, what it reminds me most of is like Bill Burr's famous set in uh, Philadelphia where he was on. Uh, they were doing the virus tour and like Dom Herrera went out there and got the shit kicked out of him and they were booing. And uh, legend has grown over the years, but I've heard like they're throwing shit on stage and stuff like that. They're getting wild and rowdy. And Bill Burr just comes out and goes, fine, fucking scared of you. Fuck you, mother. Well, yeah. <laughs> no, I'm just quoting Bernie Mac. I don't think he literally <laughs> said that. But he's like, fuck you guys. And, you know, and he just rips Philly head to toe. That's what this set was like. And the reason I say it's more of a performance is because, like, if you were there, I can imagine him just saying, hit it, and fucking dancing around on stage. That has to be much cooler than it plays on TV if you're actually there for it. And him coming out and saying, I'm not scared of you, like putting them in their place, and which is really all you have to do to win a crowd over <laughs> is just address them, I think. Uh, but having the balls to do that when you're kind of a nobody, like nobody knows who you are, and it just goes to show you if you confront, you know, whatever you're scared of, that kind of put it can, can put you on the map, which it did for Bernie Mac for sure. Um, so Bernie went on, and you hear, so I loved the Bernie Mac show when I was a kid. Um, and he was, at the time, like, I don't remember the Bernie Mac show ever getting real hype, but he was praised for, he was nominated for Emmys and things. So it was to, on some level um, critically acclaimed, I guess, or like respected, even though I, I remember watching it. I think it was on Friday nights because I remember uh, watching it at my dad's house mm. when we would go over there. So uh, I loved the Bernie Mac show. And I think you can kind of see his persona when he says, uh, I ain't here for no foolishness. Yeah. That was a big Bernie Mac thing. Yeah, yeah. And uh, the interesting thing I always found about the Bernie Mac show was just changing the perspective slightly on family comedies. Because it's essentially just like a dad who's married and has a tough time dealing with his kids. You know, it's been that aspect of it has been done before. It was just a regular sitcom. But the things he changed where, like, he would address America. I remember him addressing, like, you know, he would break down the fourth wall and address the camera. But the thing I found most interesting about that show is the kids in the show were not his children. He, the way, that, the premise of the show is that his sister is a drug addict who went to rehab, and he has to take care of her kids, uh, you know, while she's away. Yeah. And so, and that's the premise of the show. And to start that way, I think is so different I think it's relatable to a segment of the country in a way that isn't done in your usual family sitcoms. Like, it adds a darkness to this otherwise 
kind of generic sitcom that, you know, does take balls to do, really. And I think, like, it fits Bernie's character and everything to kind of make him the curmudgeon he turned into. But, um, you know, I, I, I thought it was a good, interesting show. It didn't, you know, it wasn't crazy, you know, all-in-the-family type breaking down barriers. But I, I do think it was good, and I think it was the best. The four guys we're talking about today, I think the Bernie Mac show is the best one thing any of them did, in my opinion. Um, so uh, what's the next? This is, uh, um, oh, my God, Kevin. Uh, oh, Kevin Hart. Yeah, Kevin Hart uh, um, talking about Bernie. Yeah, okay, so let's play that before I get into the next thing I want to get Bernie is the comic that's nationally known as the guy that you never wanted to follow. There was not an audience or room that Bernie Mac did not destroy. And by destroy, yeah. the laugh, there was no laughter left. There, there's <laughs> nothing left. He, it's he, so took, true. he took everything that a crowd had to give. There is nothing left. So going after Bernie, you may get laughs, but it's not the laughs that we just heard that these people are capable of giving. So the laughs that you get when you go after Bernie it's kind of discouraging because I, I just heard y'all make more noise than this. I just heard you guys laugh more than this. I know that you guys can laugh harder than this. And it's like there's only one man that was capable of that. So you hear that a lot also about guys like Joey Diaz. Yeah, that's exactly who I thought of when he yeah. said that. Yeah. Joey Diaz is the, probably the most common. Brian Holtzman is another one that I, they, they talked about in the Comedy Store uh, documentary. And I saw him at uh, Skankfest, and he comes on late, and he, he's just a weirdo, and he yells, and it's kind of out of nowhere. He's an odd guy, and for that reason, his laugh, like, I remember laughing at him differently, like, it hit me different than other comedians. Yeah. Not even saying it's funnier. It just was different, the way Kevin Hart was saying that there. And I also wonder, so, like, Joey Diaz, I think, is probably the best example, because you hear that, like, where he just levels, you, you can't follow him. Big J Ogerson's another guy like that, I think. Um, but, uh, another thing I wondered when I was watching Bernie Mac is, uh, I, I wondered if Patrice was a Bernie Mac fan because they're totally different comedians. And I think Patrice is a much better comic, quite frankly, but the way like Bernie Mac has kind of presents his opinions and you know, Burr, I think has a little bit of influence, not just in the Philly set that we talked about, but there's this thing of like presenting hard opinions on just like regular life and then like kind of convincing you and by the end of it you're like oh I get his point and I think the greatest example of that and you saw that mostly in his show uh the Bernie Mac show where he was big like that character was almost uh, Archie Bunker-esque in the sense of like don't be a pussy was kind of his message you know kids today are too soft don't be weak you know don't don't uh like, if you're getting bullied in school, don't run to the teacher. Don't run to me. Confront it yourself. That kind of attitude, mm. which is, by the way, gone. That wouldn't have flown now. That's that's just gone in society now, I think. Um, but the reason I bring that up is because it was a big part of Bernie Mac's personality. His daughter um, did a podcast. I think she's been on a couple podcasts because I found a few different clips of it. It was just too long to include in this, I thought. Um, I didn't send a clip of that, did I? Uh, no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it was, it, it was very uh, long and meandering, kind of. But her point was um, that Bernie was not a great father. She talked about this after he passed away. And she would say, like, you know, his message was kind of like, don't be weak. 
you know, uh, uh, don't be soft. That's something I guess he would say a lot. Now, she would go on to talk about how, like, if he was in a bad mood, then the, the entire family was in a bad mood. And his mom would kind of, like, walk on – everyone would walk on eggshells around Bernie. Uh, so that, I think, is a different element of it. But it is interesting to have someone like Bernie Mac, who was isn't around to have evolved over the last 12, 14 years. Mm. Um, so it's interesting to hear someone talk after he died about him almost being kind of this, like, bully figure – when you forget, and like that's how a lot of people were 20 years ago. You know what yeah, I mean? Like yeah, that was a big yeah. 20 years ago. Bernie Mac was not like on an island by himself, no, no. saying "Don't be a pussy." You know, this everybody gets a trophy. Generation is soft. He was not the only one saying that. So it's interesting. We've evolved as a society, but if you go back, like someone that was raised by him in the society we live in today, looks at that and says, "Like, oh, he was an asshole." When I don't know, like I think maybe he was trying to teach them a lesson. I don't know. You know, who knows what he was like as a father. Maybe he was a complete dickhead. But it is I, I just thought it was something interesting where, you know, he kind of was who he was in his act. You know, it was it didn't veer too far off. It didn't seem anyways. Um, but this now, uh, now we have a clip of him on Conan, right? Uh, yes. Yeah, so this is him uh, giving a little perspective on uh, the original Kings of Comedy, which they had Spike Lee direct, which I've never understood the idea of having like a big name direct your comedy special. I don't know what the point of it is. Yeah. Um, to me, so the, I think the best example is uh, Bo Burnham directed Chris Rock's, uh, I think his latest Netflix, uh, Tambourine, which was on Netflix. And all things, like if you're focusing on the directing, which I'm, I never am, uh, Bo Burnham, I thought did a good job because the only reason I say that is because there's a moment where Chris Rock talks about, um, his an affair that he had, and getting divorced, and it's very personal, and it's not it's not getting laughs, and it's not meant to get laughs. It's like a very personal, intimate moment. And Bo Burnham has like real tight close ups on Chris when his face is like very serious, and you can tell he's very emotional. And I thought it, that did stick out to me because I I was like, oh, that's an interesting way to shoot that. Like I noticed it for whatever reason. Yeah, that's the only time directing has ever. I cannot imagine. Like, uh, Killing Him Softly is probably my favorite special of all time, Dave Chappelle. I can't imagine if Scorsese got his mitts on that, it would be any better. Or take a special I hate. Take, you know, Nanette by Hannah Gadsby. If Scorsese or Tarantino got their hands on that, would it suddenly be funny? No, of course not. So I don't understand the idea of directing a uh, special, and Bernie Mac puts a pretty good perspective on that with Conan here. Uh, But, uh, well, first of all, Spike Lee directed this movie basically about you guys doing your act. Why, why did Spike Lee choose this project? Because Spike's last five films fell. <laughs> oh, shit, I thought there was another joke there. He uh, goes on to insult Spike Lee's movies. <laughs> but it, it's very funny. Because I think that's just the truth of it, where it's like, oh, it gives the movie some weird credibility for some reason. Where, like, maybe there's a guy who's not a huge fan of comedy, but he's like, oh, Spike Lee put his name on this. It must be good, you know? But I don't know how much – I never understood how much difference a director makes in uh, the the making of a special. Yeah, I don't think – not real big. No. Like, Louis C.K. directed Bobby Kelly's special, which will come out this year. The only reason that matters is because Louis is putting it on his website and promoting it. Mm-hmm. So that'll help Bob Kelly. 
You know what I mean? Other than that, it doesn't matter. The camera shots of seeing Bobby Kelly's face closer or further away is not going to matter to you yeah. when you're when you're laughing or not laughing at it. Right. Um, so, yeah, that, that's all the uh, Bernie clips we have, right? Yeah, correct. Yeah, so uh, overall, uh, I think Bernie Mac is a funnier character than I thought his stand-up to be. I don't relate to his stand-up as much. Um, there's a very funny family guy quote where uh, Stewie Griffin says he loves Bernie Mac. And he goes, I can't understand what the devil is saying, but there's a lot of movement and bright colors. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it, with with Bernie, it's the delivery. A yes, lot of it is the delivery. Very, yeah, very yeah. delivery heavy. Where if you gave someone else the script of Bernie Mac's stand-up, you'd be like, oh, okay, you got a big dick oh, or whatever. Yeah. But Bernie's delivery of it is very funny, and there's absolutely a talent to that. And I thought that was uh, the best portrayed in the show, which I did enjoy as a kid. I haven't watched it as an adult. I don't know if it hold, holds up or not, but... Um, so we'll move on to a um, much more serious story of D.L. Hughley. So D.L. has an interesting story, I think, because I know him. I remember watching him as a kid with when he himself had a, a sitcom. And I think it was on TGIF. I think it was on Friday nights on ABC, if I remember right. Uh, but he had a family sitcom where it was like you know, very influenced by The Fresh Prince, where it was a... Uh, it was successful D.L. Hughley. It was him uh, as a success trying to deal with raising kids and having money and being a successful black family in America. So influenced by the Jeffersons, obviously, a lot as well. Um, but that wasn't D.L.'s real upbringing. I think he would have had maybe a more successful sitcom. I mean, it lasted four or five years, so it had a good run. But I think he would have had a more successful show if he was truer to who he was and how he came up which is uh, as a member of the Bloods, which he talks about. And by the way, I don't know how prevalent he is in this interview. The guy conducting the interview, Vlad, I hate him. I hate when I have to include clips of this Vlad asshole. Yeah. He's my most hated interviewer. <laughs> <laughs> Where DL will tell this story of like being in the Crips, and he'll, re he'll end with like, ah, okay. Yeah, <laughs> like, he's, why, yeah. Why are you reacting that way? <laughs> <laughs> but anyways, here's uh, DL talking about uh, being the Bloods as a kid. So, so from what I read... You were affiliated with the Bloods at one point. Yeah, 135th and Avalon, fives. Uh, that, that, uh, uh, 135th and Avalon, neighborhood called the 135s. It was where I grew up. The name of my production is five times, company is five times uh, productions. Not um, for an, any affiliation with the neighborhood, but for affiliation with the cats, who I thought were uh, the clearest, most honest, bravest human beings I've ever met, and not in a glorified way. I think that they just... Um, were men to me, and uh, I, although I didn't, uh, I would come to later on understand that the things they were doing were illegal, they never struck me as particularly immoral. Like, I know a lot of things are immoral, uh, 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 but legal, and I know things that are, are legal but not immoral. So I, I think they were, uh, you know, <laughs> some of the best human beings I've ever met. So that's an interesting perspective, first of all. Uh, because that's coming from someone who like lived the life. You know what I mean? Say what you want about it. But that's a guy who actually lived that lifestyle, so he knows more intimately what that life is like, what those guys are like, and he himself was a part of it. But there's a very interesting contradiction when he's like, these were good guys. These were just, you know, listen, they yeah. might have done illegal things, but they did nothing immoral. Yeah. There's an interesting contradiction he makes when he talks about why he left uh, that lifestyle. At one point, your cousin got killed. Sure. 
And hold on, this fucking Vlad. Oh, do I hate him? Hey, so your cousin's dead. <laughs> this guy. It's just the subtlety of a fucking bull in a china shop. <laughs> Anyways, I'm sorry. It's uh, difficult because he grew up. Uh, he was a Hoover, a Five Nine Hoover, and I was uh, from the Fives. And he was my one of my favorite cousins. And when he died, they wouldn't let me go to the funeral, which I didn't understand. But Bloods had killed my cousin, so I knew that uh, later on I would come to realize that me being there would, wouldn't have been a great thing. To me, he was just my family. But it was the, at that point I realized that I didn't, I knew I didn't have it in me to take human life. And it, I just, I, it just seemed um, brutal to me. And it seemed that it, I knew that that wasn't in my thing. I remember being a kid and feeling so bad for the cats around me and not even knowing why. Uh, I used to feel so sorry for them, even they had the money and the brides and the cars and they were cool and they could do, but but I always felt bad for them and later on I would realize it was because I knew I would see things in the world that they never would. So that was, uh, I guess, my first real uh, concentrated look at empathy. So I don't really understand that. Like he's talking about his cousin being murdered and like a sentence before that. Those clips are like a second apart. And he's like, these are these are good fellas. Yeah, <laughs> these right. are nice guys. Right. Now, to be, I mean, to be fair, it's also he was a member of it, so he's had to rationalize it in some way. You know what I mean? Like he's had to rationalize the life he lived as a kid to make it so that he's he doesn't think of himself as a monster because I don't think that's what he was even. You know? Yeah. Like he had a tough upbringing and was able to make something of himself through that, which is very impressive. Um, so. I just, it, it is an interesting like contradiction though that I think a lot, and you'll hear that with mafia guys too. Like I listen to a lot of Sammy the Bulls stuff, and it's interesting to be like, we were we were you know we only we kept a code with each other. Yeah, right. And then he'll tell some story about like you know punching a fucking waiter because he looked at his <laughs> wife. You know, <laughs> um, so well, they kept they kept the code with each other, not right? That, not that waiter, <laughs> right? Exactly. Yeah. So, um, yeah, he had a. A very tough upbringing was able to, you know, make something of himself, and something that kind of speaks to, uh, like I said in the Roseanne episode, I think, uh, in a lot of ways, the the pointing the finger at diversity, like blaming a lack of diversity or blaming racism or blaming misogyny, whatever, has gone too far. But as we learn going through this show, especially talking about things from 20, 30, 50, 60 years ago, um, you know, there. It does hold true in a lot, a lot of scenarios, and I think one of those is the idea that when you look, you look at these guys' careers—Bernie uh, Mac, Cedric the Entertainer, Steve Harvey, D.L. Hughley—you could all, you could say maybe that's why they wound up together in the Kings of Comedy, but they all had very similar routes, and that's true of a lot of black performers. Like we heard in the Bernie Mac clip, they talked about guys who were on that Def Jam show: Chris Tucker, uh, Martin Lawrence. Chris Rock went through there, you know, so it's these black performers. There's a, a lane that like Hollywood and the industry made them take. And you've heard Chappelle talk about that a lot when it's like they wanted me to wear a dress in a sketch and shit like that. There is, if you look at the careers of black comedians, they follow a lot of the same paths. And that's because people were, I, I think, were so limiting in what you were allowed to do if you were a black performer. Like I just said, like we just heard, listened to the, fascinating life that D.L. Hughley lived. And yet when he got a sitcom, they were like, what if you're a, you know, well-to-do guy living in Los Angeles and trying to deal with that? And it's like, oh, like fucking Fresh Prince that was on three years ago? Yeah. You know? Um, 
So I, I think that's interesting in a way. And uh, DL is very aware of that kind of stuff because he became very political, uh, which we'll talk about in a second. But another interesting thing early in DL's life is um, that he had an affair. He cheated on his wife. He's, no, he's another guy that got married young and then had pretty rapid success and didn't necessarily uh, deal with it all that well. And this is a heartbreaking story, um, you know, kind of curated by the worst guy in the world to conduct this interview. <laughs> it's still our boy Vlad, who's going to take on the idea of uh, illegitimate child and infant death. <laughs> so I forget if Vlad's even in this clip, but my, my anger towards him has not dissipated. But uh, here's DL talking about that story. And I was hustling to pay child support and... Uh, I remember she had come to me and said, "If you pause one second, I'm sorry, I should have uh, set up maybe a little better." Uh, he he got a woman pregnant, and she tried uh, extorting him. I I I don't know if he, that's even the right word when it comes to paying tr child support and things like that. But she did threaten to like you know reveal it to his wife and blah blah blah. Um, so that's what he's talking about right there. Me on your life insurance. I'm gonna tell your your wife what happened okay. and. Um, I decided that I would have one great weekend with my family, and then that, that Sunday I would tell them what happened um, because I wasn't going to um, make that leap and put them on my life support, uh, my, my, li my life insurance, and mm -hmm. until I got um, confirmation, until I'd gone to, you know, take the DNA test and all yeah. that. And, and so it had, that was like a Thursday. And then, um, so... And it was an Easter, which would have been that Sunday. So I decided I would, I would go to church with my family, and I would tell them after church, and get ready to spend my last weekend with my family. And um, oh, you I, figured your wife was gonna leave you after that? Oh, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Okay. So I, uh, that was a dumb plan in retrospect. But so Saturday night I'm performing um, um, at Maverick Flats in Los Angeles. My friend calls me and says the baby's in the hospital. He's not gonna make it. And I remember praying that God would take this off me all that time. I was like, and instantly I thought two things. My prayer was answered, and it was the worst thing that In ever the worst happened. possible way it was answered. Yeah. Vlad, completely not getting it. Yeah. <laughs> As usual. Read the room, Vlad. <laughs> so, funny, if you can put a funny part of that clip, it's that what Dio was about to reveal is this heartbreaking moment where he realizes he thought, I. This is the best thing that could happen. Like this is a positive, and then realizing what a horrible thought that was, and Vlad just stomps all over that, and he's yeah. like, "Yeah, it's a that, it's a bad way to have a great thing happen to you." <laughs> like, That's not what I mean, you dick. <laughs> but if you can uh, take Vlad out of it, um, DL Hughley obviously having this emotional moment and very like a profound way of telling that story where he's talking about a horrible time in his life and horrible thoughts that he had, but in a way that if we're all being honest with ourselves, we can relate to. You know what I mean? Like if you found yourself in that situation, despite how tragic it is, and um, that guy's out of jail, by the way, as uh, DL talked about later in that interview, uh, that guy's out of prison. And, and Vlad handles it with a lot of grace. <laughs> yeah. um, but, but uh, you know, it's amazing perspective, and that's why I think DL and Steve Harvey – in my opinion, are the two most interesting guys of this group to listen to talk um, because they'll bo they've both lived a life, as we'll get to with Steve Harvey as well. But uh, DL, 
a very interesting guy, very intelligent guy, and um, became a very political guy to where he's almost more associated with politics at this point than comedy. Um, he still does stand up. He was just at the Providence Comedy Connection here not that long ago. Um, and he had an incident where he uh, collapsed on stage a couple of years ago as really? well. Yeah. I think it just ended up being like dehydration or exhaustion or something. Okay. But uh, yeah, it was a scary moment for him. But he is very associated with politics. He had talk shows on like CNN and um, things like that. I think, I'm trying to think if it was HBO or Comedy Central that tried some sort of like weekend talk show with him as well. Um, and it never really worked out. Even the Hughleys was on for four seasons. Like D.L. Hughley is a guy that's known but not for anything in particular. And I think it's mostly – I think he's he might be the most benefited by the kings of comedy because there's not one other thing you can point to and be like, that was a huge success of DL's career, at least in my opinion. Maybe I'm selling his political stuff short or his radio show. Uh, he had a syndicated radio show for a while. But I don't look at anything of those being huge successes. You know what I mean? If I wasn't pointing them out because we were talking about them, you might not even know they happened. Um, yeah, but he is definitely inter an interesting guy, and to the point where I even listened to him talk about when uh, Anthony Cumia was fired, he went on with Opie and Jim like a week later. He was booked like that week, I think, and he went on and talked about why he thought Anthony should be fired, and that's a weird environment to go in and say that that week because tensions are still high. The fans are you know boycotting Sirius XM because they're furious about it. Blah blah blah. And DL went in and explained why. He's like, no, I think what Anthony said was racist. And he gave his opinions on it. And me, as someone who didn't agree with him, was still like, wow, that's very interesting. And he made me think about it differently. So I think he is a great talker that in that way. His stand-up never really resonated with me. Um, but he is, he is definitely an interesting guy to listen to talk. And he has an amazing story, I think. Uh, but a lot of it, like I said, was very serious. So there wasn't as much. I didn't spend as much time on DL because a lot of it was very serious Stuff like we heard. Um, so that brings us to, by the way, if we can go back a minute, I didn't even met. We talked about Bernie Mac. I didn't even mention he died in 2008, did I? Yeah, we talked about <laughs> Okay. He had like a rare, uh, they originally said it was pneumonia. And uh, it turns out it was more of a, a thing segmented, like particularly um, black people and Asian people get like, it, it, white people aren't susceptible to it for whatever reason. Um, so it was like kind of a targeted, like a, a you know, something that Bernie Mac got that uh, caused him to die in 2008. It's a very young guy. But I remember just a funny story about that. I remember where I was when that happened because um, I was at my house. We were in high school, I believe, still. And uh, my buddy Tom was over and we were playing pool. We had a pool table in my house. And I remember we were playing pool and I don't think we would have had – I certainly didn't. I don't think Tom would have had a smartphone yet. So I don't know if someone texted him or what happened, but we heard that uh, Bernie Mac died. And I remember, to, I oh, it must have been me. Someone must have texted me because I told Tom. And he goes, you're kidding me. And this is a guy, like I said, I liked his show, but he didn't really have an impact on me yeah. or my life. And Tom goes, wow, really? And I go, yeah, he's dead. Very sad. I guess he had pneumonia, as we thought at the time. And then I uh, took a couple more shots. And my buddy Tom just standing there with his hands on his pool cue, minutes later, I'd moved on. And Tom just goes, I just can't believe he's dead. And I was like, get over it, man. Believe it. 
The, so Bernie I, did have an impact on some people. <laughs> I think the most recent movie he had been in when he died was Transformers. Was, oh, yes, you're right. I was going to say Mr. 3000, but yeah, you're right. Yeah, Transformers. He was the uh, car salesman. He had he had a great acting career when yeah. you think about it because he had his TV show, but he was also in like Ocean's Eleven. Ocean's right, he's great in Ocean's. He Eleven. starred in Mister Three Thousand, which I don't think the other like Cedric has obviously been in a bunch of. Oh, he has. I'm sorry, he has starred in movies, but I think Mister Three Thousand might be the most successful starring role of any of the four of these. So say what you want, he was him as uh, pseudo yeah. Barry Bonds. I mean, like D.L. Hughley has a few small roles, right? Um, Steve Harvey, not so much, but, um, Cedric's only like starring role is Johnson family vacation. That's exactly what I was thinking of. Yeah. And <laughs> even that was like such like a, a flaw, like a under, it's not underrated. It's just is what it is. Yeah. It's, it's rated like straight, perfectly. It's a straight <laughs> to DVD movie. You right. Know? It, it, right. 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 Whether or not it came out in theaters or not, it is what it is. And he, and, oh, you know what? Cedric was also in the remake of the honeymooners. Uh, yes, they made yes. they remade yes. the honeymooners of course. with Cedric the Entertainer. Yeah, which you know, fun idea, I guess. I don't think it worked <laughs> particularly well. Um, but uh, one last thing I was going to say about Bernie Mac is I think it's funny that whoever made the movie Mister Three Thousand essentially made a movie about Barry Bonds, but they were like, wouldn't it be interesting if instead of the home run record, which stood for generations and everyone knew that number. 714 was a, such a significant number in baseball. Wouldn't it be interesting if instead of that, we just had a guy that got 3,000 hits? <laughs> <laughs> like, wouldn't that be fascinating? <laughs> um, so anyways, moving on to Cedric the Entertainer. Like I said, Cedric, I think might be, and I say this in kind of a positive way, the most boring of the four. No real major controversy. We'll get to a couple of his controversies that he's had. But he's lived sort of a boring life. The biggest dirt I could find is he has a kid. He's been married to his wife for a long time, but he does have a kid from a different relationship. There wasn't a lot about that. It didn't seem too controversial. Um, there weren't a lot of crazy. He's quietly had like a good career. He has you know a special on Netflix, and uh, he was obviously part of the Kings of Comedy. Has been in a shit ton of movies. Um, Barbershop, probably his. Most known and funniest role, I would say. I love that movie. I think a lot of that's what a lot of people would say. And Barbershop and Friday were the two movies that you could tell really, like particularly in black culture, were huge, like very influential. Those were two of the biggest movies I think of the late '90s, early 2000s. Yeah. Uh, as far as that goes. Um, so speaking of Barbershop. I think our first clip is about that film, right? Correct. Um, so we should probably play the clip of the movie first, right? Yes. Yeah, so let's play that. This is a very famous scene where Cedric the Entertainer's character is like an old, you know, it's if you haven't seen it, it's literally based in a barber shop where they just kind of shoot the shit, talk politics, news, all that type of shit. And Cedric the Entertainer's, uh, you know, given the straight dope, as they say, about certain <laughs> uh, civil rights figures. Now, I probably wouldn't say this in front of white folk, but in front of y'all, I'm going to speak my mind. Rosa Parks ain't do nothing but sit her black ass down. No, no, hold on, hold on now, Seinfeld. You might learn something right now. I'm going to give her a just do. I'm going to give her a just do for what she did. Her act led to the movement and everything. But, but, but she down show ain't special. No, it was a whole lot of black folk sat down on bus and they got thrown in jail and they did it way for Rosa did. Oh, and they did it with Only difference between them 
and her is that she's secretary at the NAACP and she knows Martin Luther King and they got a lot of publicity. It, to me, it sounds like you got a little haterism in your game. Well, Kevin, God, no, no, this ain't no hateration or no holleration in this dancery, okay? <laughs> what I'm saying is, is that black people need to stop lying. Say something. There's mm -hmm. three things that black people need to tell the truth about. What's what? One, one, Rodney King should have yeah. got an ass beat for driving drunk and being grown in a Hyundai. Uh, 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 two, OJ did it. Oh, <laughs> oh, Rosa Parks ain't do nothing but sit her black ass down. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> so that was a controversial scene at the time, obviously. And I think the best line in there, because it kind of speaks to what the character is, is he goes, now I wouldn't say this in front of white folks. Um, because it tells you like the perspective of that character, which Cedric will talk about in a bit. But my favorite line in that scene is when he goes, number two, OJ did it. Yeah. That's what everyone's outraged. They have the most outraged by <laughs> yeah. that. They're like, oh, come yeah. on. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But, and it's not even like the, their reaction is not even like they don't believe it. They're, they're like, don't oh, come say, on, leave how it alone. dare you? Don't yeah. say that. Leave it alone. <laughs> Rodney King deserved to get his ass beat. OJ like, did uh, it, and they all go nuts. <laughs> <laughs> so I think that's a, that's a great scene because it's not what – you can tell a white person didn't write that scene. You know what I mean? You can tell that's a guy from their neighborhood that they're aware of, and that's what Cedric is talking about with uh, Dr. Phil here, I believe. In the script, it was written in a way that I thought was, I understood what the writer was trying to do. He was he wanted to do something that was controversial like that, that kind of like, you know, uh, made people feel a certain way, but... Um, it was. I thought. I thought in the script it was written a little more distasteful, and so I just did it my way. The same thing that he wanted to do, and I got a lot of. I had a lot of um, leeway to improv on that movie because once. Because once I started doing the character, uh, the director was like, "Hey, man, this is incredible. Like, I didn't. I don't even. I had no idea like this was gonna happen. So I would improv a lot of my jokes and stuff. And so in that, in that, I remember it was a big fight. The producers. Nobody wanted me to say it. Nobody wanted it to be, uh, you know, people. I was like, dude, I don't have no problem with this. I think that this guy, this old man has seen it all, and that's basically all he's saying. I'm not I'm not saying it. And, like, you know, we cleaned it up. I said, I'm not saying that Rosa Parks doesn't de deserve credit. You just saying other people sat down before her, and they got beat up, and they got, especially the men, they got beat up, they got sent to jail, and he was friends with some of these people. And so... It's like, that's the point. It's like, you can't make somebody go like, oh, like Jackie Robinson was the only one to play baseball first. No, it was other people that, you know, that he was the first one that we all know, but it was other people that didn't get that, that same chance that was good enough to play, you know. Oh, was that it? That's it. Um, I, think, I think that's such a great perspective, and it's so true of everything that, you know, we focus on in entertainment now where like yeah maybe this is offensive particularly if you get you know if you get mad at uh, stand up that's one thing whatever but when you're getting mad at a a script a movie or a character in a show or whatever if you're getting mad at that what you're saying is that that person doesn't exist you know what i mean by saying that that shouldn't be in the script you're saying okay there's no by being mad that a character said that in barbershop what you're suggesting is cuz in the in the scene we heard it the other people are outraged by it. They're like, don't fucking say that. What are you, crazy? Right, right. You know, so the, it's not like the reaction is, yes, he's a hero for saying it. 
it's not enough. This guy's speaking his mind. He's seen it all, like Cedric said there. Yeah. And, and you know, he's telling it like it is, as it were. And um, to be outraged by that is to say, no, 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 no man like that exists. When it's like, no, I've met him. I've met a lot of people like that. That'll just tell, and maybe you're uncomfortable by it. And you're like, oh, gee, believe me, I come from a, a an Italian family in the suburbs of Western Massachusetts. I've heard some things where you're like, oh, I don't love that, <laughs> but it exists. You know what I mean? So if I were writing a show about that kind of an upbringing, I would put shit like that in there where you're uncomfortable by certain comments about you know race or your your politics or whatever. Yeah. So um, I think that's a. a a perfect perspective by uh, Cedric the Entertainer there. Doing a lot of patting himself on the back for the improv, but nonetheless. Not to get, yeah, right. Not to get too <laughs> sidetracked, but yeah. Dr. Phil's podcast, Fill in the Blank. Oh, God. And the way his <laughs> set is set up, it looks like it's from like a movie, like scary movie or like another parody movie. And Dr. Phil has a podcast and it's called Fill in the Blanks. Maybe he just did that for Cedric. He's like, that's what these people like, right? <laughs> yeah, right, right. I'll there's find like, that funny. It's like a motorcycle <laughs> in the back and like, it's very strange. <laughs> uh, yeah. So I think, you know, that's why I think movies like Barbershop resonated so well um, in black culture because they were honest. You know, they had characters that spoke their mind and were honest like that, which Cedric was able to provide there. But uh, the the other thing that I think, as I stall, because I forgot the other thing that I thought, um, I've been doing that a lot on this podcast lately, by the way, where I just start a point and then like, where the fuck am I going? You go on this? a journey. <laughs> <laughs> just completely lose my train of thought. Oh, that, and then I talk long enough to regain it. There you go. You always <laughs> get it, though. You always come back so, to it. So... Um, well, that shows you how much we've changed where I remember people getting mad about that scene. I don't, you know, I wasn't fully entrenched in a cancel culture back then. So I wasn't, I don't remember that quite as clearly, but I do remember people saying, oh, that's wrong that that's in that movie. But what happens is Cedric the Entertainer says, no, I like it. I put it in there because I know people like that. And then everyone kind of says, ah, fuck you. And then they move on. You know what I mean? Like. I think like if we still handled things like that today, and that's what Netflix and Spotify are proving, where if they just tell you, like, yeah, sh you know, shut the fuck up. Yeah, right. Then eventually people will just go, ah, all right, you son of a gun. The, I still don't like it, but I have no one to yell at anymore. One of the more Ricky, one of the more recent one, the Ricky Gervais yeah. um, special, when like I felt like at the time, the way it was being torched, I felt like, oh my God, like this is going to be the next like big thing. That's right. Gonna, like, you know, Ricky's gone, like that's it. And then, like, literally, maybe out, like, like forty eight hours later, yeah. it's over. It was it, that one was a minute. It was like, over the Chappelle thing. We're still seeing backlash yeah, from, but Ch they like doing it to Chappelle too because I think media outlets love that Chappelle is such a big name. They like cover, yeah, yeah. Ricky Gervais doesn't feel like it would get the same clicks. That no, Chappelle it doesn't. Would. It's like if you keep going back to Ricky Gervais, it's like we get it, yeah. we get it, like enough. But like, the Ricky thing that you're talking about wasn't a big deal by the end of the day. You're right. Yeah, it was like, like done hours, maybe. Yeah, like if I, I think I talked about it on my podcast the next day. And even then I was like, I think everyone's kind of over this. It's old news. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's very strange. Um, so, that, uh, oh, so there's another uh, controversy that Cedric the Entertainer stepped in. Yeah. Uh, like I said, not a lot remarkable about his career. I watched, you know, some of his bits for the from like the original Kings of Comedy and shit, and it's nothing that I loved, you know? I don't know that he would be a bi as big a name if he wasn't affiliated with those guys. Um I, what I remember Cedric the Entertainer from is uh, the Steve Harvey show, actually. 
He was like the wacky friend, Cedric Jackie Robinson, on the Steve Harvey show. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> the gym yep. teacher, I think. Yep. Um, so, uh, you know, nothing crazy about his career, but he's incredibly successful. Like I said, he's been in some iconic movies. He's been in some not-so-great movies. Um, he, he hosted Who Wants to Be a Millionaire for a long time. He's hosted uh, game shows like that. He's always been around. Like he had a, a sketch show on Fox that wasn't, you know, remarkably successful, but I knew it existed. Like he's always been around. He hasn't, I mean, he's never been the guy, you know, he's never been a guy that stands out to you as like one of the great comedians, but he's kind of, you know, carved out a career for himself where he's incredibly successful. Mm. Um, but, you know, maybe the biggest impact that I found that he made in the comedy world is a bizarre accusation by Cat Williams. And I'll, Tell you why it's bizarre in a second, unless there's something that I'm not aware of here. But uh, this is Cat talking about uh, a joke that he feels like was stolen from him um, by one of the Kings of Comedy boys. Well, it, when it initially happened to me, it, it, it crushed me just because um, the comedian was already bigger and more famous than me. And he took my closing joke and made it his closing joke on Kings of Comedy. Uh, the reason it hit, hit so bad was that I was in the theater. I paid my money to go see Kings of Comedy and um, to see my joke being there and not me um, was about as disrespectful as it gets in our craft. And um, I really took it really personally with Cedric the Entertainer at that time. Now so, first of all, I love uh, the diplomacy of Cat Williams lasts however long that clip is. Where at first he's like, you know, this guy, and I saw he was one of the kings of comedy, so he's kind of cracking on saying who it is. And then by the end of the clip he's like, so Cedric the Entertainer is the one that yeah. stole it. Yeah, right. <laughs> this comic was bigger than me at the yeah. time. <laughs> so he's like hinting at it, and then he's like, here, who it is? He wears uh, funny hats. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. He doesn't have a real last name. <laughs> um, so... Cat, the thing I find baffling about that is Cat Williams says in his explanation that he bought a ticket to see the Kings of Comedy. Now, just timeline-wise, the Kings of Comedy was out way before anyone knew who Cat Williams was. Now, you could argue, I, I don't, Cat Williams might have been doing comedy at that time. I'm not sure. So technically, Cedric the Entertainer could have walked into, you know, an open mic night and saw Cat Williams do that. The bit in question, by the way, might be most, Cat Williams' most famous bit, where uh, you know the the bit where he's talking about doing black thing or doing white things, but trying to black it up. Yeah, and he says like DJ hit it, and it's a uh, every day I'm hustling by Rick Ross. Yeah, yeah, and he's like you know you're trying to throw shit in the in the cart, uh, but like not do it white basically, and so that's the bit. Now the bit I didn't include the uh, e either bit because I went to watch the Cedric. Uh, version that Cat Williams is saying he stole. And Cedric the Entertainer is basically saying, um, talking about black people going to the moon, like behind white people, but they would do it in uh, like a Cadillac with a headlight out and shit like that. Uh, like, you know, playing on stereotypes, obviously. Mm -hmm. But it's very, it's a visual bit where he also, I guess what Cat Williams is saying he stole is saying, hit it, DJ, and playing music and kind of, uh, you know, it, Doing stereotypical things, I guess. Yeah, I think that's a stress. That's what he, that, it's a complete stress because we literally heard Bernie Mac do the same thing. Yeah. In an earlier, right, in an right, earlier drop. Right, right. So it's a bit of a stretch. And I think Cedric kind of puts into perspective uh, just how 
silly the claim is. Unless there's something I don't know. Look, I have no idea what this brother is talking about. That <laughs> joke is over 30 years old, close to 30-something years old. I did the Kings of Comedy in 1999. Probably had been doing that joke six, seven years before that. I don't even know if Cat was doing comedy then. So, you know, again, he a talented brother. I have no idea what he's talking about. I've never seen Cat do a, a space shuttle joke. So, uh, you know, there may be something that he believes is true. I've, I've written a lot of jokes. I've had a lot of comedians steal my jokes as well. So I understand if you feel, you know, slighted by that, but that's my joke. That's my joke, dog. Yeah, so I think that's kind of perfect. The, the, the worst uh, crime, I think, mentioned in that clip is, why have you been doing that bit for 30 years? It's not that great. <laughs> yeah, right. He gets a writing, Cedric. Because <laughs> it's even in, like, it's in the original, it's his closer in Kings of Comedy, but it's also in some Netflix thing that I found. That's part, another part of the reason I didn't send you the clip is because we would have gotten taken down. God yeah. knows we've had enough YouTube infractions. YouTube. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I don't think there's anything there. I think Cat Williams is just uh, – his head got a little big there when he thought that one. But that's what we talk about a lot with joke stealing where it's like, okay, yes, you can explain this to me in a way that makes sense why you think it's the same joke. But that doesn't mean it's stolen. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like, that doesn't justify your accusation. I see what you're saying, but it's not joke thievery. It's something else. Uh, it's parallel thinking at best in this case. But right. yeah, that's more or less um, the at least the interesting thing, the things that I found about Cedric's career. Nothing really wowed me in the same way uh, that they did our. There's a lot to talk about with Steve Harvey, um, but we'll do the abridged version here, like I said. Where uh, Steve, very successful now. I would say the most, at least monetarily, definitely the most successful of the uh, four kings of comedy. Yeah, I would say so. Uh, now, I don't think that's necessarily through stand-up. In fact, he's kind of like a... I would say it's exclusively not through stand-up. Exactly, yeah. yeah. I've heard some of his stand-up kind of mocked a little bit. Like another guy's on Come Town, a famous bit that they reference... And this goes, this goes back, to be fair, it goes back to what we were talking about with Bernie, where a lot of it's delivery. Like, he has a bit where he's saying, uh, he's talking about getting old, and he goes, you remember when you were young and you used to take a piss, and now that you're older, you just urinate. <laughs> and it's like, if you really, that doesn't make any sense. No. <laughs> but his delivery is like, oh, that's kind of funny, <laughs> you know? Right. Um, but yeah, he started stand-up pretty late. He started at 27. And uh, he was homeless for a few years. And it's interesting, listening to this interview, he's on with Sway in the morning on Sirius XM. And uh, it was interesting to listen to this interview because you talk about, you know, not knowing people's upbringings and having different perspectives and things like that. It was fascinating to listen to an interview where two guys, uh, Steve Harvey's talking about being homeless, and Sway's like, me too. <laughs> and you're like, oh boy. They've had a, <laughs> I don't know, maybe I didn't realize how easy I had it. But uh, this is Steve talking about uh, being homeless around the time he was trying to get into comedy. See, you're looking at a cat. Look, man, I didn't get into comedy till I was 27. I was homeless from 30 to 33. I lived in a 1976 tempo. I lived in a car for three years, man. Uh -huh. And so people see me today, they don't know, you know, man, where I come from. And I tell young cats all the time, man, the key is you can't ever give up. So he he's also become kind of a uh, you know, motivational speaker, a right? dime store, yeah, motivational speaker. I'd say the only difference between him and a guy like Tony Robbins or Gary Vee is Steve Harvey isn't charging you for his thoughts. 
You know what I mean? Like some of them could be you could you could say they're kind of a shallow or whatever, but they are like uplifting kind of motivational things that are interesting to listen to. And he's not really charging. He's not trying to scam you out of it. Like it's just his kind of philosophy on life. And he's a very interesting guy to listen to talk, I think. Um, and he has that sort of perspective like they're talking about there where, you know, he looks at having been homeless as like a positive thing because he was able to work through it, yeah. you know. Um, so that's very interesting. And that's something I think we've lost in comedy a little bit because the more we talk about people that came up in comedy 30, 40, 50, 60 years ago, you know, whether it's Jackie Gleason, whose dad's uh, whose dad fucking threw away the family photos and left or, uh, you know, people trying to get out of the, get, you know, dodge the draft or serve in the, in the war, um, or like Steve Harvey, where you lived homeless for a few years, it doesn't seem to be the trend in comedy now where you have people who really live the life, you know, it's now more, they've dealt with internal struggles. You know, a lot of people dealt with alcoholism or mental health issues, but you don't have the same, um, upbringing of people who genuinely lived a real life. And that goes back to the Norman Lear quote that we always talk about where it's, you know, in Norman Lear's day, they were writing about their experience and now they're writing about things they saw on television. And that's probably the biggest difference between the culture now and what it was, you know, 40, 50 years ago. Um, but what's the uh, what's the next Steve Harvey clip that we have? Um, him still talking to Sway a little more about his back. Is, uh, oh, yes, yeah, so this is another interesting thing that he was involved in. Let's hear that. All them mistakes, dog, yeah. they cool to make. Yeah. You, I needed to mess up. Every marriage, I needed to get arrested like I did. Yeah. I needed to get shot. Uh-huh. I needed all this, dog. Got, I, I needed shot? to be homeless. Yeah, we, we, let's not bring that up. Okay. That's not for his Because all the people that be talking about, man, you get shot, it, it don't hurt, it just burn. That's a complete <laughs> lie. <laughs> Pow! Pow! Jesus! Jesus! I'm telling you, shot ain't what you want. Shot ain't cool. I needed all them things to happen to turn me into who I am today. So when you're young and you making mistakes, don't let them eat you up. Because mm-hmm. everybody that done made it, done made them. Yeah. You got to fail in order to win. His, again, back to the delivery being a key part of his comedy, yeah. more so than the writing necessarily. It's like he's an interesting guy to listen to speak. And I feel like he was, I, he's always been a natural host, I think. You know, now we know him as like the family feud guy, but that didn't come till way later in his career. Yeah. But like he started as a host of Showtime at the Apollo and shit like that. And he's kind of just now, he has a charisma and a way about him uh, that I think just make you kind of want to watch and listen to him. You know, like I don't think he's necessarily the most talented, certainly not the most talented comic, but you know, I don't know. Uh, if I would consider him the most talented entertainer necessarily, there's just a natural like charisma and the way he talks and his perspective on life is definitely interesting. Like I was never a Steve Harvey fan, but cutting a lot of these clips, I was like, okay, this is a guy I could definitely listen to talk for a while. And that, you know, kind of culminated in him having a nationally syndicated radio show uh, and shit like that. So, uh, you know, he had, and he had the Steve Harvey show had a successful run. It was on the WB. I remember watching it as a kid, uh, it was uh, Lori Beth Denberg's finest role from <laughs> yeah. all that. Yes. <laughs> they also had a, a, what, like the white dopey character on the show was named Bullethead, which I guess the implication was he was dumb because there was a bullet lodged in his head, which is an oddly dark. 
<laughs> I don't think there's nothing odd about it. It's dark. <laughs> An oddly dark thing to add to the Steve Harvey show if you ever go back and watch it. But uh, also, a guy who had maybe the most interesting wig in the history of entertainment. Where it looked, it looked if you were, even I could tell, it looked like a felt flat top. Like nothing looks real about it. <laughs> yeah. Um, but he eventually ditched that, went bald, and became. He retired from stand up in like 2012. Um, and he, but he talked about uh, towards the end of his run in stand up. I think that's the next clip, right? Him talking about getting the kings of comedy back together, sort of. This is the one where he's on Family Feud. Um, it's the unnoticed no. by the press. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this is at, uh, I think it might be at Bernie Mac's funeral where he's talking about this. Uh, or it was certainly around that time where he's talking about how the Kings of Comedy went unnoticed by the press. Very sad story, by the way, where they were talking about kind of rebooting uh, the Kings of Comedy. And then uh, Steve was going to reach out to Bernie Mac. And literally when he was in that process, that's when Bernie died. Uh, but he's talking about the success and and how the kings of comedy dealt with their own, you know, uh, racism as they were uh, being promoted in any ways. Then the kid comes back to us and said, I can get the arena next Friday and Saturday, same city. We said, same city? You can't sell these tickets again. He said, you're very popular. They put the tickets on sale Monday morning. Boom. We sold out again. We sold out 94,000 tickets Pause man, one second. in two weeks. Just, I wanted to throw this in just because I'm realizing as I'm listening to it how inappropriate this would have been at Bernie's funeral. It's not. Yeah, it's a different. I wa the clip at his uh, at Bernie's funeral was very sad. Like Steve Harvey got emotional. D.L. Hughley got emotional. Cedric was the only one that seemed like okay with it. He was, he was cracking wise. <laughs> but uh, it was very – but no, this is a different setting that he's talking And so – we became really close. We be, it was brothers. And then the second year, we added uh, D.O. Hughley to the show just to give us some more. And we toured together, and we were just like the highest-grossing comedy tour in the history of comedy. Nobody had ever sold that many tickets in the Kings. But the thing about America, though, there was no newspaper articles about us, nothing for two years. For two years, they wouldn't even write about us. They wouldn't give us a story or nothing. Eh, it's just four blacks. What are they doing? That's nothing. They didn't know how many tickets we were selling. We was making, man, we made like $58 million. We was making so much money. And Good God. It's quite a chunk of change. And to his, uh, you know, to his point, and I can't speak to exactly how much it was covered in the press at that time or anything like that, but I do remember, and again, to be fair, I did hear the Kings of Comedy promoted when I was a young kid. But I don't remember it ever being promoted as much. Like when we talked about Ron White, that Blue Collar movie was on all hours of the day on Comedy Central. You couldn't get away from the Blue Collar Comedy Tour. So there might be something to the idea that a, a tour that made $54 million wasn't getting a ton of press. Now, you could also say they were the first ones to do it. So maybe they paved the way like... You know, the press didn't pick up on it until after they did it. They were the first. But it is an interesting thing, like we talked about with certain, you know, routes that black entertainers had to go as opposed to, uh, like, white comedians. Uh, it is interesting that they weren't maybe given the amount of credit 
that like later the blue collar guys got, you know? Mm. Um, what else do we have left for clips? Uh, the last one is uh, this the joke that uh, might have gotten Steve Harvey kicked off of SNL. Yeah, so let's hear SNL. Well, it's the Asian joke. Oh, I got you. <laughs> I got you. Yeah, this is uh, shout out Shane on his on his uh, radio, show. and then we'll talk about some of the other uh, flubs, shall we say, that Steve Harvey has had. Finally, here's one: How to date a white woman? A practical guide for Asian men. <laughs> That's one page too. Excuse me. Do you like Asian men? No. Thank you. Oh, that was a date no, a black woman, a practical guide to Asian men. Same thing. It's the same thing. You like Asian men? I don't even like Chinese food, boy. Very, you're not allowed to laugh at that. Very offensive. Oh, I'm sorry. It don't stay with you no time. It's really more about his delivery. <laughs> Again, yeah, right. We don't even hear what he's saying. I don't eat what I can't pronounce. I don't eat what I can't pronounce is the, the big joke. So uh, Steve Harvey got a lot of flack for that. He had to go and apologize. The thing that I like about uh, Steve Harvey is like before the apologies, like, yeah, I'm going to have to apologize for some dumb thing later in this show. <laughs> so he, he didn't really give a fuck. Um, he's also had mo- so to go back to like Bernie Mac and his perspective on like raising kids and things like that. Steve Harvey also has an interesting perspective, which is kind of amazing that he's been allowed to have a career, I guess. And maybe some of that's because he pulled away from comedy, but he wrote a book, uh, think, act like a woman, think like a man. I think the book is called, yeah. which turned into a movie, think like a man, Right, right. which is basically like. Steve Harvey's a big proponent of, like, men should be men, women should be women, you know? And I think maybe he's progressed a little over the years and softened on that, or at least publicly he has, maybe. Um, but it is interesting, like, he has that perspective and he's, you know, he's kind of allowed to just be the wacky family feud host. And, um, then, and then you have people like Jordan Peterson, who are a little more extreme, but right. similar views. Right, but that's, you know... You're not, you're not allowed to do that. I don't know why that is exactly. I can't put my finger on it. Well. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so other interesting things about Steve Harvey's uh, post-comedy career. I, I, I find his time as fa- the Family Feud host, like, so good. He's well, he's the great. longest running host. Um, he's been on there forever, and he rejuvenated it. He, it's so funny. Like, it, like I, can't, I am, like... You don't see many clips of game shows like on social media. Oh, there's none other than his now. Constantly, yeah. Cl- uh, family Feud clips on Instagram, TikTok, whatever. Constantly. Which the part I love about that is like, and this is what Family Feuds. Here's why Steve Harvey's the perfect host for Family Feud, because this is what it's always been, but he has just brought that to the next level, where it's like, uh, you know, the example I always use is uh, the category is. Something hard that you put in your pants. Yeah. You'll find in a man's pants or something. <laughs> and the woman will be like, a, a penis? And Steve Harvey's like, my God. Yeah, yeah, can you yeah, believe yeah. this woman just said that? <laughs> yeah, that's it, but it's just funny. It's really funny. And the other thing he does really well, too, is he he will he'll keep a laugh going by just his mannerisms. Yes. And Which is 
uh, something that's like signature, like one of his signatures. Yeah, just his roll of the eyes or the drop of his jaw. Like Why, the, yeah, the my god attitude that he gives. Like, can, I cannot believe this man just said this. Right. <laughs> Why I was laughing in the last clip is just him like standing there, like moving around, like yeah. opening his mouth, pretending to laugh. It's crazy. Yeah, and th- even when I did like the, the you know pseudo impression of him when I was telling the the you know when you take a piss a joke. Yeah. It's because you can't tell that joke without. Steve Harveying it up. <laughs> yeah. Like I said, it doesn't make any sense otherwise. It's stupid. Yeah, right. um, but uh, so, he, you know, when you, to your point about Family Feud, when uh, Louis Anderson and Richard Karn and uh, Peterman from Seinfeld were hosts, it was just on. Like it was on at noon on some network. And like if you were home, you'd throw it on, you know? Whereas now it's like a cultural phenomenon. It's all over TikTok and Instagram and shit. Uh, so he did rejuvenate that. He also kind of rejuvenated uh, Ms. America for a minute because he was such a charismatic host. And he had the big thing where he flubbed, you know, he's like, the winner is uh, Miss Rhode Island. And it was not. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he's like, oh, oops. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oops, the daisies. And uh, so that was hilarious. Obviously, not for that woman, but no, <laughs> it was not. hilarious. And uh, the other big controversy he had, which. Uh, this, there's a lot of comparisons to Ellen. He got a lot of shit for this. But I will defend Steve Harvey, surprisingly. Um, do you remember there was the big controversy? He said uh, he put out, like, rules, like a mandate for the staff of the Steve Harvey show. And uh, one of the things was, like, don't don't look at uh, Mr. Harvey when he's in, um, uh, like, you know, I don't know, hair and makeup or whatever. Don't chit-chat with him. Don't make small talk with him. Like, these were the rules, which sound, on the surface, incredibly, you know, prima donna-ish. Like, oh, Jesus. Like, we can't say hello to the fucking guy. He's our boss. Yeah. Just walking down the hallway. Uh, When you heard Steve Harvey explain it, he was basically like, listen, I had to make a clean break. because I couldn't say, hey, you, the chatty guy, you're not allowed to talk to me. Right, you have to make, yeah, right. Because you're wasting my time. I'm on to the next thing. I'm moving. Like, well, yeah, I have a limited time here. I'm doing so many things. I have a radio show. I have this. I have that. I have the talk show. I have Family Feud. Like, I need to keep it moving. Um, and so I had to make just a general mandate, like, don't stop to talk to me in the halls. And he's like, that wasn't to say, like, if you, hey, hey, Steve, good morning. Yeah. I wasn't like, you're fired. <laughs> you're yeah, out. Right. You know, it, it, at least the way he explains it, he wasn't some awful tyrant. So I can understand, and he got a lot of shit for that. People were like, what a fucking monster. <laughs> yeah. But I could understand his uh, his reasoning. So the reason, the, the reason I wanted to combine all four kings of comedy is because, like, alone, they all had very interesting careers, but I don't look at any one of them as a major influence in comedy or anything like that and again bernie mac might be the most where i think he had the most unique and original voice for Mm -hmm. sure um but like none of them i do i hear listed even in the same breath as like damon waynes like damon waynes you don't think of as a huge star now but people from that era that grew up in that era talk about damon waynes what what a killer he was yeah and what a huge influence i don't hear that about a lot of these guys but together they did something that had never been done in the history of comedy before. And that's going on a tour with four head massive headliners uh, that made $54 million or yeah, whatever he said. Crazy. That's a um, lot of money. And to answer a question I asked a couple weeks ago on the Ron White episode, I was like, I don't know who the Jeff Foxworthy was. Like, who was the name that built all that? And I guess all of them were. Like, they were kind of all at the same level. 
And the way they explained it, because uh, you heard DL joined like a year into it. Um, so the way I think it was Steve Harvey that I heard explaining it, where he said, uh, you know, Bernie Mac was selling out 5,000-seat venues. Steve Harvey was selling out 5,000-seat venues. Cedric the Entertainer was selling out 5,000-seat venues. So they kind of did that math and said, you know, is there too much crossover in our audience or could we each sell Could we sell an arena together? Right. And it turns out they were right. So they did a, an incredible thing. They they all had very interesting lives, I thought. Um, and so that's why I combined uh, the episode and just did them all together because the original Kings of Comedy is a name that I think – I think the original Kings of Comedy name – and again, this is just Steve Harvey's comedy career, not what he's become as a host. I think that name outweighs any one of their individual names in comedy. You know what I mean? Like if you say the Kings of Comedy, everyone knows who you're talking about. Whereas like Bernie Mac and Cedric the Entertainer and D.L. Hughley don't have that same name recognition. You know who all those guys are, but I don't think it means as much in uh, the grand scheme of comedy. Maybe I'm wrong. Let me know in the comments, whatever. Um, I don't know. Anything before uh, we get out of here? No, no. Other than uh, tell the folks about Vaulted Podcast, where can they find you? Yes, uh, on Twitter, at Matt from RI. If you want to come record here, like we're doing right now, you can hit me up and we can work something out. We also do, uh, we record off-site. If you want to do any kind of work elsewhere, we can Oh, I didn't know that. You. We should say that more. Yeah, well, you cover it when you say we, we film stuff as oh, well. We, we, yeah, we'll travel. Um, yeah, so yeah, hit me up, at Matt from RI on Twitter. And if you like this podcast want to support us more, a free way to do that is by, you know, subscribing, liking everything we do. All that helps the algorithm. Leave a five-star review. All that stuff helps, or so they say. And uh, if you want to support the show financially, go to blindmike.net. You can find all the links to the podcast there, but it's also where you can find our merchandise. Uh, grab some Why You Laughing merch, if you'd like. And uh, it's where you can find the Patreon as well. Become a gearhead. Get these episodes a week early, as well as all kinds of other bonus content. And you can find all of that at blindmike.net is the place for you. And uh, I don't know who we're doing next week, so we'll find out. And uh, we'll talk to you guys next time on Why Are You Laughing?